Hello and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Neil Phillips. This episode is going to be a bit different to a normal one. We haven't done any news for months, so I thought I'd do a news special because there's been a lot going on. Start with some podcast news. Uh, Vic's not here still. She's not recovered as fast as we'd hoped, but, you know, hopefully she'll be back in a couple of months or so. I'm going to aim for doing two episodes a month, at least up till Christmas. Um, I've got some great guests lined up. I've spent hours and hours doing lots of research to make some other episodes on various species and wildlife topics, so that could be quite good, all things being well. I'll move on to my recent sightings. I did manage to get out a bit this month after basically not going out at all in August for various reasons. I went to see some hornet robber flies in Oxfordshire, which is pretty cool. I had a redback shrike 10 minutes from my house. There was a tame weed here there too, which was really nice, got some lovely pictures. I headed to Fursley Common to get the black darters for my dragonfly tour and just recently I went down to Kent to get the wall lizards and popped into Stob Marsh where I ended up filming an ichneumon wasp trying to egg lay into a fence which was pretty cool and pretty much all of this I was filming so it'd be worth going along to my YouTube at YouTube forward slash UK Wildlife all one word and you can watch those videos they'll be out soon all being well and I need to catch up on some thank yous Big, big thank you to Natalie Walsh, Brooke RG, Charlotte Chetwind and an anonymous donor that didn't leave their name for donating to the podcast through our Buy Me A Coffee account. So thank you so much. That all goes towards the hosting of this podcast. And it looks like a few people have given us five star reviews on iTunes. So a big thanks to everyone that's been doing that too. But now let's get on to the UK wildlife news. Well, I'm afraid there's lots of bad news, so I'm going to go through all that. It's going to be quite long-winded to explain some of it, but do hang in there. There's some good news to cheer you up at the end as well. So we'll start with some crap news, namely the crap that's in our rivers. If you ever needed motivation to build a pond, well, the way things are going, it looks like they are going to be the only clean water in the UK. Water companies pumped raw sewage into Britain's seas and rivers for more than 2.6 million hours last year. That's a 2,500% increase from 2016. Please forgive the politics that's coming up, but it's sadly unavoidable with this story. Under EU law, it was illegal to dump sewage in our rivers, with an EU legal ruling in 2012 requiring sewage dumping to only be allowed in exceptional circumstances like floods but the Environment Agency simply did not enforce this law. And as a result, sewage flowed from some outflows for over 200, and in some cases, 300 days a year. But that brings us to the new Environment Bill, which ministers have claimed will help clear up our rivers. An amendment was raised to this Environment Bill that would require water companies to stop dumping sewage into our rivers. When it was voted on last autumn, most Tory MPs voted against it. This is what you may have seen with people saying MPs voted for sewage in our rivers because effectively they didn't vote to stop the sewage that is increasingly going in there now. In the rain after the drought recently, the water companies released a lot of sewage which put the issue back in the news and MPs reacted angrily when people started sharing they had voted for sewage in rivers. They again rolled out the claim they voted against trying to fix the issue overnight, which was not the wording of the amendment, and again claimed it would cost 650 billion to fix, a figure that has never been publicly explained or costed. Fergal Sharkey has been very vocal on this issue, and when he kept raising this online, I saw many cases of MPs and their supporters trying to discredit him and say he was wrong, rather than address the issue. After a public outcry, 
They have now put forward a plan they claim is the strictest ever. But in fact, it only requires a 25% reduction in sewage going into our rivers, which isn't even close to what we need. And they have till 2030 to meet that target. The end result being that in eight years, instead of 400,000 hours of sewage dumping into our rivers, we'll have 300,000. It was summarised brilliantly by Fergal Sharkey. He said, we've gone from a position where it should be in 99.9% of cases illegal. The law was quite clear. We've now gone to a position where it's about reduction in adverse impact. What does that even mean? I think I'm going to have to get Fergal on the podcast at some point. And sadly, now I'm going to have to get even more political. We have a policy of avoiding politics, but I feel the prospects are so dire, I can't really ignore it. So we've got a new prime minister, Liz Truss, and her track record is not exactly great. When she was environment secretary, she slashed the environment agency's budget by 57% and did not have a single meeting with water companies about sewage dumping. She was in charge of DEFRA when Fish Legal and WWF went to court over the change to the voluntary reporting of farm waste dumping. After a judicial review, the Environment Agency were forced to inspect the river acts, and 95% of farms had not complied with any slurry storage regulations, and 49% were polluting the river. And it was under her leadership that DEFRA relaxed the Badger Coal licensing, which led to its rollout across the UK and tens of thousands more badgers being killed. In the past, she has also stated she wants to repeal the ban on fox hunting with dogs. Of course, that ban hasn't stopped it happening. Which brings me on to the Sevington Hunt in Somerset, who were filmed taking a wild animal, presumably a fox, out of a cage on the back of a quad bike and releasing it in front of a pack of hounds for them to chase. But back to our new government. We have a new environment secretary whose first public appearance was to appear alongside the NFU talking about food security and farming and not even mentioning the environment. And we have a new environment minister, Mark Spencer. Rather worryingly, he's been described by the outgoing minister, Zach Goldsmith, as the biggest blocker of measures to protect nature, biodiversity and animal welfare. He will be our very own little Bolsonaro. Grim news for nature. And sadly, he might have a point. Mark was undersecretary for Liz Truss when she was environment minister and he was key to helping roll out the badger coal, and he's a proud member of the National Farmers Union. Unfortunately, the bad news keeps coming. Liz Trust has ended the moratorium on fracking as part of the deal with energy companies. Fracking was stopped because there was earthquakes being caused and concerns about the environmental impact. In other countries, there's been massive problems with water and air pollution, and when they did try it here near Blackpool, it started causing earthquakes. The biggest joke of all is they've used the cost of living crisis as an excuse to reallow this, when some estimates are saying it's going to take 30 years to get the gas out of the shale deposits. And if we get every last bit of that, it's only going to be enough gas to fuel the UK for a year or so. That is not really going to help with fuel security, and it won't make our energy bills any cheaper, because the price is determined by international market prices. But perhaps most worrying of all is the retaining EU law bill. They want to sunset the various EU laws that protected our wildlife and habitats and were transferred to UK law when we left the EU. Currently, all housing developments affecting European protected wetland sites need to be nutrient neutral, which means they must not add nitrogen or phosphate in a way that will affect the wetlands, which means they have to carry out mitigation or the development has to be changed so it won't. But developers are celebrating as Liz Truss has promised to get rid of this. It's really starting to look like most, if not all, the EU-based nature protections are for the chop. There is currently a requirement for councils to consider the impacts of recreational disturbance to any nearby woodland from new developments. This helps prevent damage 
and disruption to wildlife from the hundreds or thousands of people and their dogs and cats that will suddenly be appearing right next door to them and increasing footfall through their habitat. A few other laws have been highlighted as under threat. Most worryingly is the Habitats Directive. This ensures developments don't take place in areas of valuable habitats with vulnerable species and pushes these developments to areas that will be less damaging. There have been efforts to get rid of them in the past, but all reviews by the government found they worked and were effective. Despite this, the plan still seems to be to ditch them. Thankfully, many of these valuable habitats are protected by the UK SSSI designation, so at the moment they will have some sort of protection. Though it should be noted that many SSSIs are in poor condition at the moment. There's also been announcements of things like investment zones and free ports with charter cities where corporations will be able to override and ignore planning and environmental regulation. And it's looking like these areas could cover valuable habitat in the Thames Estuary, the New Forest, the Isle of Wight and Dartmoor. It's all looking pretty terrible. We'll know more soon about the plans for this stuff. In fact, as I've been recording this episode, the HM Treasury has released an advert about the creation of investment zones with generous targeted and time-limited tax cuts for businesses, liberalised planning rules to release more land for housing and commercial development, and reforms to increase the speed of delivering development. That releasing more land bit is particularly worrying. Land that is currently protected will be allowed to be built on. This has the potential to make the awful state our wildlife is in much, much worse. But we'll move on for now to our next story, which is some interesting science that was published last month. We've mentioned pheasants on this podcast many times in relation to their possible impacts on native species. Nick Baker mentioned a colony of high brown fertility going extinct on Dartmoor after mass releases started next to the colony's main stronghold. And it's also been mentioned by other guests on this podcast. There is a prevailing opinion among many herpetologists that releasing 40 to 60 million non-native pheasants and partridges each year, which has a biomass greater than all the wild birds in the UK, is having a negative effect on reptile populations, at least in some areas. Until now though, there hasn't really been too much peer-reviewed science on this, but last month a study was published from Belgium. It was called The Impacts of Massive Releases of Pheasants on Squamates. Squamates is basically lizards and snakes. The authors were Eric Grattison and Julian Tamens. The study is in French, but I've used Google Translate to find out what they've said, and they handily released a summary in English, which I'm going to read in full now. The ring-necked pheasant is an introduced species in Europe. This bird, known to be a predator of reptiles, is the subject of various hunting practices with the aim of artificially increasing its numbers, including the massive release of farmed animals. We have studied the potential impacts of these massive releases, on native squamates in Wallonia, Belgium. Our results suggest that lizards and snakes have disappeared from areas subject to massive pheasant releases. We show that the disappearance of pheasants from one site after a few years by the return of widespread species of lizard. In view of these impacts on biodiversity, the practice of releasing pheasants into the wild should be prohibited. Whew, that last sentence is pretty damning. It is only one study, but it is further evidence that these mass pheasant releases could be a really bad idea. Now it should be said, a lot of the pro-hunting bodies were not impressed with this study, so when I got an email from the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, I assumed it would be about this. They did issue a response to it, but the email was about something else. Now quick side note, I've never subscribed to any newsletter from the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, but soon after this podcast took off, they started sending me emails out of the blue. And I'm not the only wildlife podcast to be getting these emails without asking for them. Anyway, this email was about pie martins, which they were basically claiming are behind the decline of capercaillie. 
For those not familiar with Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, or GWCT as they're sometimes called, they do carry out some great scientific research, have some great people working for them and with them and, you know, collaborating with them. But some of the press releases over the years and some of the other behaviour they've done has been a bit, well, so we're looking for, interesting. They were formerly known as the Game Conservancy, and in that guise they called for a cull of hen harriers just about 10 years ago, to be fair. Now, when the Hen Harrier Day movement started, on the first ever Hen Harrier Day, they paid Google, I don't know how much, to make sure they came up first on the search engine if you search for Hen Harrier Day, directing everyone to their website with a somewhat, shall we say, skewed view of what the Hen Harrier Day was about. While everyone else was raising awareness of the persecution of these birds, quite often by gamekeepers, they were sending people to try and support their brood meddling scheme, as it's been nicknamed, where hen harrier chicks are taken from the nest where they're an inconvenience to gamekeepers and the grouse shoots they manage. They're then captive reared and released into the wild. The problem with this being that it doesn't actually protect them from persecution after they've been released. The GWCT is also pro-badger cull and against beaver reintroduction, sceptical of pie mining reintroduction into England, and of course there's the constant attacks aimed at anyone or any organisation that criticises driven grouse shooting. Their chairman once wrote to the Times to complain about Chris Packham admitting to eating tadpoles, saying it would encourage children to do the same and might threaten the survival of the common frog, while basically ignoring any persecution of birds of prey unless they absolutely have to acknowledge it. Now back to their most recent email, they say Capicalia facing extinction, which is no doubt true, and low chick survival seems to be the main source of decline. Predation of chicks has been pointed out to be a known factor, so they call for predator control. They say crows and foxes need to be culled, which, you know, I'm not going to disagree with. Thanks to a whole bunch of factors, they're probably above natural levels, and the capicale are at unnaturally low levels, so that's going to cause conflict. But they also point the finger at pine martins and say they need to be relocated away from the woods with capicale. They don't really say where they want to move them, though. To quote them, they say, Despite well-intentioned conservation programmes to improve capicale habitat, extinction seems likely in the next 30 to 50 years. This is an interesting claim, as the RSVB and many rewilding and other conservation bodies in the area are working to increase habitat. But many of these projects are fairly recent, and it takes decades to create suitable woodland. But perhaps the most worrying thing about this email is they simply skip over the issues of deer fences and most importantly disturbance, which has been highlighted in every other study I've read about capicale decline as a major issue for this species which is notoriously vulnerable to disturbance. People walking off paths and dogs running around disturbing them will stress the birds and potentially flush them, making predators aware of the capicale's location as they get flushed. Not to mention dogs killing capicale, which has happened a few times too. And a joint study, which included the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, RSVB, Scottish Natural Heritage and a few other organisations, found capicales are most numerous in woodland with pine martins in. Now this story made the press, but a response came from Benedict MacDonald, who's the author of Rebirding and a Rewilding Advocate. He wrote a response in the Inkcap Journal, which you can find online. I'll put the link in the notes. He highlighted the issues with disturbance, which has greatly increased in recent years with leks and breeding birds now more likely to be disturbed than ever before. He also mentioned the issues with changes in management, namely grazing. He quoted Roy Dennis, who said that in the 70s woodland was lightly grazed by cattle, which encouraged the growth of bilberry, the staple food of capicale. But since the cattle have been removed, 
the heather is grazed less and has taken over, leaving less space for bilberry and reducing the amount of food available for capercaillie. The RSBB have now put cattle back in Abernathy Forest and in these areas capercaillie numbers are in fact increasing. He gives examples of two areas where capercaillie are doing well. One in the estate where they are culling predators, but not the pine martins, and managing the habitat well. And the other is the Glenfeshie estate where 40,000 acres has been subject to a large-scale cull of deer, which is leading the forest to naturally regenerate. No predator control is carried out, and yet the capercaillie numbers are increasing as a result of the landscape scale restoration, which is in direct odds to Game Wildlife Conservation's claim that habitat restoration is not working. Now, if I put my super cynical hat on and go back to the email, when talking about pine martins, it says Nature Scott subsequently dismissed translocation on feasibility grounds, but failed to address the need for proven, immediately available alternatives to protect capercaillie broods. So they are calling for pine martins to be relocated and yet in the same email they're admitting that it's not viable and Nature Scott probably won't allow it and then ask for viable alternatives. I wonder what they could be, especially considering in 2014 the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust called for a cull of pine martins and got a lot of flack from various conservationists and experts for it. And earlier this year the Scottish Gamekeepers Association called for a pine martin cull to save Capercaillie. I'm sure that's completely unrelated to the fact that pine martins have been known to take pheasants. And I'm afraid we have one more very depressing story, and it's probably been the story of birding this summer, and which is bird flu. But hang in there, there is some good news coming. Bird flu has spread across the UK. It's killed so many birds. Many gannet colonies have been hit hard. The Channel Island gannet colony of 5,000 pairs in Alderney lost 20% of its chicks, and they think a quarter of the birds may have been infected. Bass Rock got hit hard with hundreds, if not thousands, of birds washing up on beaches nearby. Gannets have been washing up around the country, really, seen dead or dying on beaches. Coquette Island lost thousands of birds. There was a tweet on July the 21st that reported they had removed 2,000 dead seabirds from Coquette Island that colony being the main population of rosate terns, and they lost 79 adults, and that's out of a UK population of only 160 pairs. As dead birds started turning up across the UK, DEFRA would send out a team, if it was a new area, to test and see if they had spread there, but they wouldn't really do anything else after that, and they got a lot of criticism for this. The public was, and still is advised, to stay away from sick and dying birds. Wildlife rescues can't touch the birds, even if they're still alive, because they can't risk getting infected themselves. That's the people that are rescuing them. And of course, they could then pass it on to the animals in their care. So they just couldn't risk it. Defra, as we said, didn't do anything. And that meant that there was all these infected bodies and dying animals just lying around in the countryside. Predators and scavengers would come down, and then they would get infected too. There was even a story about the laboratory that carries out all these tests, which due to underinvestment, is in a deteriorated state and not fit for purpose. Despite bird flu being found in pheasants, DEFRA did not ban the import of them. In normal years, up to 80% of partridge production originates in France and at least 40% of pheasants. But due to the outbreaks in France, many of the birds were not legally allowed to be imported for 90 days under international import laws, which DEFRA were trying to work to get around rather than try and limit the imports and the risks from bird flu. Game birds are raised in cramped conditions before they're released, which is the ideal conditions for the spread of disease. It does seem the releases are down this year, but many shoots did manage to get stopped, often from British breeders. 
In August, there was a call for a ban on the release of pheasants and partridge from the RSVB due to the risk of spreading bird flu to wild birds. This, of course, was ignored, and now pheasants in Cornwall, Cheshire and Norfolk have tested positive for the virus. There are unconfirmed reports of hundreds of pheasants that have died in Norfolk. Some were collected for testing, and all six of these pheasants that were tested came back positive for the virus. It is unclear how or when they caught the flu. Was it from wild birds, or was it from other pheasants, and did it spread before or after they were released? However, the Game Farmers Association claimed, All the evidence points to it being spread, and I quote, by seagulls. They also claim, thanks to the vigilance of gamekeepers, strict biosecurity and support from the game bird veterinary community, these infections have been prevented from spreading and have not resulted in any significant impact on the populations of other wild birds local to them. I think the saddest thing about all this is that DEFRA have put a lot of effort into helping keep the game bird industry alive, negotiating with the EU to try and get imports sorted for this year and next year while leaving infected wild birds just scattered across the UK, spreading the disease further. But, now for some good news, to give us a bit of hope. Beavers now have legal protection in the wild of England. From autumn this year, it will be an offence to deliberately capture, kill, disturb or injure beavers, or damage their breeding sites or resting places. The night before they announced this, they were considering dropping this, but there was so much public uproar that they went ahead with it. Now Natural England is developing guidance on the management of beavers, setting out which actions will or will not require a licence, and where people can go for advice. So people will be able to shoot them with a licence, but hopefully the option of moving them will have to be considered first. In more good news, there were record numbers of the Schedule 1 protected little terns this year, with 700 chicks at Winterton National Nature Reserve alone, this is thanks to the 24-hour protection given to them by the RSVB as a species is vulnerable to being disturbed by people and dogs as they nest on beaches. The species also did well in North Wales, where over 200 chicks fledged. So, all round good news for this species this year. The high brown fertility is having an excellent year in Dartmoor, which is a stronghold for the species, with strong numbers recorded at the known locations and several sightings at new or historically occupied sites. This is all due to hard work by local farmers and landowners, working with many organisations including the Butterfly Conservation Trust, Devon Wildlife Trust, National Trust, Dartmoor National Park and Natural England, all of which work together to manage the habitat for the species, and it is now classed only as endangered, which doesn't sound that good, but it's an improvement over the previous critically endangered classification. And butterflies are doing well in Kent as well. The Duke of Burgundy butterfly numbers are up to 534 butterflies spotted across the 13 colonies in the county. That is a 185% increase since the last recording year in 2020, and a huge increase from the seven that were found in 2003 in Kent. So that's good news. Again, that is hard work from volunteers and staff managing the habitat and working closely with farmers and landowners to adapt their land management. And the large blue butterfly are now breeding at the highest levels for 150 years. Not bad for a species that had to be reintroduced after being declared extinct in 1979. Some more good news. After a campaign that's lasted decades and intense pressure in the last few years, the government have finally banned the selling of peat in retail outlets. It has not, however, banned the extraction of peat or its use in commercial industries like horticulture. So it's a good first step. It should be celebrated, but there's still a lot more to do. 
Peat bogs, of course, are valuable habitat for many species and they sequester a lot of carbon. And extracting peat and allowing bogs to degrade does the complete opposite, releasing lots of carbon into the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. And the last bit of news we're going to cover comes from the Orphotera section in the British Wildlife magazine, written by Peter Sutton and Bjorn Buckman. They discuss the colonisation of four new species since 2000 and a possible fifth to come. The southern oak bush cricket has been here a while and continues to spread. The tree cricket, which is a weird flat and almost cockroach or stonefly-like cricket, has a large colony at Dungeness. I went to see that last year, it was really cool. And they also mentioned the two other species I saw there that night, the large conehead and the sickle-bearing bush cricket. And both of these two species have been spreading further into Kent and there are sightings appearing in nearby counties too. But what really piqued my interest was the sighting of a prey mantis nymph in Oxfordshire. Now back in 2020, Richard Lewington, who's the awesome artist and illustrator in a lot of wildlife books that some of you probably own, reported an Ufika, which is the egg cocoon, along with some adults. And this year, in the same garden, a prey mantis nymph was found, which suggests it's the first record of one breeding in the UK. So could the prey mantis colonise the UK? Well, I hope so. I think that's a good place to stop so there's a lot of doom and gloom but there are reasons to be hopeful if you do like this podcast please do drop us a good preferably five star review on apple or whatever platform that you use to listen to your podcast it really helps more people become aware of the podcast as does sharing on social media so whatever you can do that's great if you've really enjoyed it you can consider donating to the cost of running the podcast on our buy me a coffee page which you can find the link to on our webpage. But now, please go out and find some time to enjoy some wildlife where you can. Share its wonder with others, and maybe, just maybe, we can save it from these self-serving idiots trying to destroy it all. Bye for now, everybody. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips. The music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.